What if you found out a gene that once protected your ancestors from a deadly disease could now be responsible for another deadly disease? What we have learned is that many kidney diseases that were previously thought to be simply environmental and or lifestyle related have significant genetic underpinnings. That's nephrologist Dr. Sunil Udani. I'm Sarah Jane Castro, Director of Marketing and Communications for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois, and your host for this edition of The Journey Continues. This episode is sponsored by Nanny, Nephrology Associates of Northern Illinois and Indiana. Dr. Udani, what does your work include as a nephrologist? Hi, Sarah. My work as a nephrologist uh, includes a combination of seeing patients in the hospital setting, in the office setting, as well as those patients that are receiving chronic dialysis treatments. I see them in the dialysis clinic. In addition, I am the medical director of our clinical research program. In that role, I review potential clinical trials that Nanny can be a part of and then serve as the principal investigator for some of those, as well as discuss with my fellow PIs which other studies would be appropriate for which location. So are most of your patients already on dialysis? Are they in earlier stages of chronic kidney disease? I would say most of the patients I see are actually not on dialysis. They're in earlier stages of chronic kidney disease. I have a specific interest in uh, immune-related kidney diseases, glomerular diseases and autoimmune-related kidney disease, such as IgA nephropathy, FSGS, uh, ankylosing vasculitis. And as a result, many of those patients are uh, younger um, than others with chronic kidney disease as autoimmune Related conditions oftentimes do affect younger individuals. There are also individuals that thankfully have been able to preserve kidney function or recover kidney function. Some some of them actually been on dialysis, but then have recovered. So I have a little bit of a different patient population that I that I care for compared to the most common nephrology practice. But it is certainly something that I enjoy very much and find intellectually challenging and and, and rewarding. That's very interesting. I want to hear a little more about the hereditary sort of kidney diseases. Are people from certain ethnic backgrounds more prone to those diseases or at higher risk? You know, we've discovered this a lot more in the past, I'd say the past decade. You know, genetic testing has become much more readily accessible. And what we have learned is that many kidney diseases that were previously thought to be simply environmental and or lifestyle related um, have Uh, significant genetic underpinnings. I'd say where this is most relevant is in the African-American population in the United States. The African-American population is disproportionately suffers from chronic kidney disease than any other population in the United States. And for much of the last century, that was not known why. It was thought to be related to high blood pressure, perhaps uh, lifestyle choices or behaviors. And over the past decade now, it has become clear that there's much more to this and that there are specific genetic variants that occur in specific genes that significantly increase the risk of chronic kidney disease in in African-Americans. This has led to really an eye-opening revolution in how we think about kidney disease as a whole, as well as thinking about therapeutics. Um, So specifically referring to something called the ApoL1 gene. And the ApoL1 gene codes for apolipoprotein L1. ApoL1, essentially the protein contains a membrane 
pore forming domain that creates an anion channel. So essentially the thought is that when this gene is transcripted and the protein that is synthesized, this protein can essentially poke holes into cells. And it was developed, you know, really as a um, evolutionarily protective mechanism to defend against parasites, specifically trypanosoma, which causes what was previously referred to as African sleeping sickness um, in sub-Saharan Africa. But it turns out that if individuals have specific variants, these are associated with a significant increase in kidney disease risk. And what now we have learned is that much of what we previously referred to as quote-unquote hypertensive kidney disease is really unlikely to be you know, kidney disease that was caused by hypertension. Much more likely it is individuals that have ApoL1 high-risk gene variants then have a, another hit, uh, another hit meaning in a viral infection, some of that may be um, high blood pressure related, other genetic changes in terms of the structural of the kidney. And together, this leads to a much more significant early onset of chronic kidney disease with high blood pressure being a manifestation of the chronic kidney disease. And this very likely explains much of what we see in the United States with this, again, disproportionate distribution of chronic kidney disease in the African-American population and those that not only have chronic kidney disease, but are on dialysis and require transplantation. You know, it has forced us to re-examine how we make diagnosis in, in chronic kidney disease. And also it has inspired us to look for treatments. And you know, very excitingly, there are therapies that are in development and in clinical trial that are specifically targeting um, the ball one protein. You know, whether that um, ultimately leads to a change in the prevalence of chronic kidney disease and outcomes in those individuals that have chronic kidney disease remains to be seen, but certainly there is now an effort directed in that uh, in that way because we know this is uh, more complex than we previously understood. This ApoL1 gene, is that something everyone has? So everyone has ApoL1 gene. However, the issue is that which variation that you have. And there's specific uh, variations, you know, they call G1 and G2. Um, those variants um, are associated with an increase in kidney disease. So evolutionary pressure likely selected for the variants that were more protective against certain infections. And that, you know, again, happened to be in sub-Saharan Africa, and that carried through with, again, with a combination of that, as well as other factors that has ultimately led to this um, very high CKD risk. So if someone has that variation of the gene, is there any way to know that? Does that come up on a blood panel? Do you find that out if you do like genetic testing, like a 23andMe? How would you find out if you had an ApoL1 gene variant? And it's not something that has been, it's not done on sort of routine blood testing. However, now there are readily available, we call next generation genome sequencing, genetic testing that can you know, readily identify this. But I can't say I'm aware of if commercially available testing would do the same. How would that variant show up practically? Like if you were just living your life day to day, hadn't had any blood work done, would you know any different that you had some sort of variant? Not in a day-to-day fashion. What we will see is that a much more early onset of elevated blood pressure, again, without any other 
clear cause. There are other causes of high blood pressure in young individuals. And one that oftentimes does not respond to medications in the same way and requires much more therapy than uh, someone else with what would be referred to as quote-unquote essential hypertension, which is sort of the run-of-the-mill hypertension. In addition, impaired kidney function, again, at an earlier age, oftentimes, and without conventional risk factors, meaning does not have diabetes, does not have another immune-related kidney disease that's present, and Another you know, clue may be the presence of protein in the urine. We know that you know, protein in the urine can develop in certain types of kidney diseases that affect part of the kidney called the glomeruli, which is essentially the kidney filter. When blood vessels alone are affected, as is the case in high blood pressure or in plaque buildup in, in arteries, a protein in the urine is not something that is seen. However, when we see glomerular injury, we see that there is protein in the urine. And so when this combination of elevated blood pressure, impaired kidney function, and protein in the urine without, again, another clear cause, those all three together should certainly raise our suspicion that this, especially someone in African-American descent, that someone has a high-risk ApoL1 allele and uh, should prompt testing. So that's probably something that your primary care physician might flag that we're seeing elevated blood pressure, we're seeing protein in the urine, and then maybe they would refer to a nephrologist at that point? Yeah, certainly elevated blood pressure and impaired kidney function. Oftentimes, protein in the urine is not checked routinely, although we are certainly advocating for it to be more widespread. And then yes, you know, referring to a nephrologist, again, this test is now readily available and oftentimes is uh, covered through you know, conventional insurance. And even in those cases where it's not, the companies that have designed the test have been very supportive about getting individuals tested. I think everyone recognizes the importance of identifying this. While again, there's not a specific therapy at this minute, there are ongoing clinical trials that people can then be referred to. We hope that those clinical trials will ultimately lead to therapies that could actually be you know, utilized on a, on a routine basis. So let's say you find out you have one of the variants of the ApoL1 gene what's next? What can you do to prevent kidney disease from either progressing or from developing further? Once we know that an individual has one feature that places them at high risk for kidney disease, such as an ApoL1 variant, then all the other features that contribute to kidney disease progression become much more important, uh, meaning control of weight, control of blood sugar, essentially not developing diabetes, or if diabetes is present, aggressive control of blood sugar blood pressure control using specific therapies. So uh, yes, blood pressure control as a whole is important for cardiovascular risk, but for kidney disease progression, particularly blood pressure lowering agents that reduce protein in the urine. And those are the class of medications referred to as ACE inhibitors or antitensive receptor blockers. Those together with other blood pressure medications to keep pressure on the kidneys down. And the way I look at it is that if you have one factor that predisposes you to kidney disease, then you know the kidney filters are fragile. And the best way to protect fragile filters is to lower the workload and lower the pressure on them. And that means carry less weight around the belly, lower blood sugar, and like I said, medications that are specifically geared to lower protein in the urine in addition to lowering blood pressure. So you're essentially stopping the kidneys from having to do so much work by monitoring what you're taking in and how your body is functioning to kind of ease that burden? Exactly, exactly. The kidney filter compared to any other piece of machinery, the more you work it, the 
more it'll burn out. You know, how is it the kidney overworked? We refer to this as nephrologists as hyperfiltration, and hyperfiltration comes from those features I mentioned. And then, you know, blood pressure plays a role, but I hesitate to emphasize blood pressure alone because we know that high blood pressure alone may contribute to some kidney disease progression, but even that's debatable. And so when we label things as hypertensive kidney disease, I would say this is a inaccurate or incomplete diagnosis in 2023. Control blood pressure is essential for other things, for heart disease prevention and uh, things like strokes, which again, unfortunately, people with kidney disease also can suffer from. But the emphasis should be on the specific agents that use not only lower blood pressure, but uh, uh, reduce that burden on the kidney itself. So since a lot of this research about the APOL1 gene has begun or ramped up, what have you seen change in diagnoses? What have you seen change in how patients are approached, treated, et cetera? I think there's still been quite a lag, even though we've had this discovery. I think that the uptake overall has still been slow. You know, we still see or encountering individuals labeled with quote unquote hypertensive kidney disease when they're African American, they, you know, have protein in the urine, all the other features that suggest, okay, this is not related to high blood pressure. That being said, because these other tests have become more accessible, there is uptake and there is individuals that are saying, hey, this doesn't make sense. This is not high blood pressure alone. Let's refer you for this genetic testing, at least get an idea. Of course, you know, understanding that that is a very important conversation to have with the patient, whether they want to have that testing done, because at the moment, it may not change directly what is done. I think that importantly gives a more complete picture. I think that, and this is somewhat, I'd say my opinion, and I think that it's been too easy to blame individuals, meaning the patients themselves, for you know, high blood pressure-related kidney disease, saying, oh yeah, their diet's bad, or they're not taking the medications as prescribed. And in reality, that hasn't really been the case. You, know, you can take all the medicine you want or prescribed, you know, follow your diet, but if there's an underlying you know, structural defect in the kidney, that's not going to be enough. And so it at least shifts the conversation saying, okay, Yes, there are things you can do that are important, but we recognize this is not fully something that you had control over. And that may or may not be helpful for people that are going through this, but I think it's important because it reframes the conversation saying, okay, yes, let's do the things that we know can help, but let's also keep our eyes open for uh, new solutions. And that's where I think, again, there's excitement around therapeutics that may target this and clinical trials. Now, I certainly have a bias and have a clear conflict of interest because I am, you know, we're part of this study that's being done because I think it's critical to, to get it complete. And I think it is essential that we see if this therapy ultimately is effective and others like it so that we can you know, change the trajectory of, of, of CKD in the African-American population, which has, we haven't really made a dent in um, in, the, in the past decades. My message to people would be, you know, refer people for testing. And if people are um, test positive, at least make them aware of clinical trials that are going on. Uh, because, you know, whether that's something that they would want to be part of or not, that's, of course, a very individual decision. But at least they, they have the information and they have the option then. Do you think that in the future, these variants or mutations can be prevented in future generations? Or is it something that we'll continue to see 
that variant show up and we'll just have more information about how to confront it? That's a very complicated question. I, I don't think in, in any of our you know, foreseeable futures that there will be the evolutionary pressure to sort of select out of this. These aren't people that die in infancy. So you know, ultimately the gene carries on and this is why it persisted. So I think our better strategy is saying, okay, identify it and then direct therapy accordingly. Is it possible for someone to have an APOL1 variation and not develop kidney disease? Absolutely. It's not that it's an absolute. Um, so if you have to, if you have a high risk APOL1, your risk is significantly higher, but it's not an absolute. And that tells us that there has to be something else that's contributing. And you know what that is appears to be a variety of factors, including particular types of uh, viral infections. We know that individuals that had an APOL1 variant that also got COVID, they had a much more significant kidney injury and uh, resulted in you know, more progressive kidney disease, even at times developing very rapid onset of kidney failure requiring dialysis. So usually takes additional insult or additional trigger to develop kidney failure. And so it becomes that all the other things that we know become you know, critically important. So with that increased risk, does having an APOL1 gene variant completely eliminate someone from potentially becoming a living donor? The short answer is there is a increased risk of failure to the donor as well as the recipient in those that have an APOL, high-risk APOL1 variation. And this is something that is very transplant center dependent. You know, how they're approaching this is based on you know, their own policies and, and, and protocols. What we can say is that individuals should have the option, those individuals should be at least offered testing. If they then do find a high-risk allele, then it becomes a um, conversation between that person and potentially the recipient. So where can people go to find more information about this sort of testing to find out if you may not know that you have sub-Saharan African descent? So where can you go to find more information about this if you think some of my test results or some of my symptoms might be lining up? I think if you have kidney disease and you're seeing a nephrologist, then it is certainly a very reasonable, very rational request to say, um, you know, is genetic testing something that I could do? And because it's readily available and we have very easy pathways to do that. So if the individual's physician does not bring it up, then certainly it should be something that a patient can feel very open to ask and say, hey, I have heard about this. Can I get tested for this? Then with that information, then be connected to uh, individuals that have more experience with APOL1-related kidney disease. And even if they don't want to be part of participate in a clinical trial, they're also what we call registry studies. So they, they can just sort of register and say, okay, I have this. If you want to see how my kidney function does over time, so just, again, just to contribute to the body of knowledge. It's not anyone's responsibility by any means, but it is certainly something that uh, as nephrologists, we, you know, we value and we're grateful for when people step up because we know it's with this type of you know, effort and extra dedication that you know, patients have. That's how we've gotten this far. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you again for being here and for uh, sharing this really valuable, interesting information with us. If you think you may be at risk for APOL1-mediated kidney disease, ask your doctor to order testing. To learn more about prevention, visit our website at nkfi.org. 
Thank you to Nephrology Associates of Northern Illinois and Indiana for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at nephdocs.com. That's N-E-P-H-D-O-C-S dot com. Prevention is a key part of our mission at NKFI. That's why at the end of each episode, Dr. Melissa Prest offers a health or nutrition tip. Here's today's health tip about sleep. Getting good sleep quality is essential for your health and well-being. Adults need about seven to nine hours of sleep each night. Not getting enough sleep has been found to be associated with the development of chronic illnesses like diabetes, heart disease, obesity, and depression. You may not be getting good quality sleep if you wake up in the morning and do not feel rested, if you've repeatedly woken up during your sleep hours, or if you're experiencing symptoms of sleep disorders such as snoring or gasping for air. Improving sleep quality may be helped by better sleep habits or being diagnosed and treated for any sleep disorder you may have. Good sleep habits, sometimes referred to as sleep hygiene, should be done 30 to 60 minutes before your sleep time every day. Examples of habits that can be used to improve your sleep health include being consistent by going to bed at the same time each night and getting up at the same time each morning, including on the weekends. Engaging in some relaxing activities like taking a warm bath or shower, doing gentle stretches, meditating, focusing on your breathing, or spending some time reading a book that isn't on an electronic reading device. Make sure your bedroom is quiet, dark, relaxing, and at a comfortable temperature. Remove electronic devices such as televisions, computers, and smartphones from your bedroom. Avoid large meals, caffeine, and alcohol before bedtime. Get in some exercise during the day as this can help you fall asleep more easily at night and limit napping during the day as this can disrupt your ability to fall asleep later. If you do need to nap, keep it to 30 minutes or less and avoid napping later in the afternoon. If you've implemented good sleep habits or you're still having difficulty with your sleep or the sleep difficulties continue to impact your day, talk with your healthcare provider for further care. With today's health tip, I'm Melissa Press, a registered dietitian nutritionist and the foundation dietitian for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois.